Hello, creeps. Welcome to the Horror Vanguard. I'll be your ghost. I mean host for today's exciting tale of terror. Evil Dead or earning a Kandarian professorship at HV University. <laughs> Good morning, John. <laughs> <laughs> this welcome is, friends welcome to the first take of the introduction <laughs> of our 100th episode we have not done this before <laughs> this, this hasn't been stopped by cats this hasn't been stopped by whiskey deliveries uh this has been a flawless piece of broadcast art this has easily been the slickest introduction that we have done in any of the 100 episodes 100 of our vanguard that this we has been, have been, ever oh God, done I, it's been so many this has been I've, I've had such a good time doing this show with you learning making new friends making talking about horror movies part of my job like this has just been you know it's the, it's the backdrop to the collapse of the world but like this little bit of my personal life has just been fucking beautiful so and i wanted i wanted to thank you personally for your participation in the madness that is it has been it has been a genuine pleasure and what like you don't often get i think creative opportunities to work really closely for an extended period of time with some of your best friends and that is what this podcast has been um it's seriously it's been, um, yeah if there's any theme of our show it's just it's it's friendship and good whiskey <laughs> friendship is as we have learned magic <laughs> it's been it's been a hundred episodes of this of this and we are so excited um that so many people have listened to the show that have told us about the horror movies that they have loved or told us that you know they have looked at film or at politics or at ideas differently because of what we have done and it has been just uh it's just been amazing and we have got some super exciting things planned for this whole for the for the most spookiest time of the year, we have some incredibly exciting things planned. But what a way to start spooky season with the one hundredth episode! It's, it's seriously, this is just it's just incredible, and it's all we we gave you a trick last month that didn't quite or last last spooky season that didn't quite pan out, and we're making up for it this season <laughs> with uh, boundless spooky treats for everyone. Um, including, if you listen to the end of today's episode, we have our very first musical guest coming on the show. We have the Ableist, uh, who will be who will be joining us with one of their exciting upcoming tracks. So definitely check that out. I really love this band. They're out of Chicago. It has been fantastic getting to know them, and their their music, uh, as the kids say, absolutely slaps. Uh, yeah, the track is a real banger. Like, it's so cool that we have got our first ever musical guest. However. Before we get to uh, the absolute fire from the ableist, um, now would normally be the point in 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 a in a regular HV episode where I would kind of like drop in the name of the movie that we're talking about. Oh, but this is not a regular horror vanguard episode. This is episode one hundred. So without any further ado, without any further ado, my dear friend, my comrade. Genius co ho co ghost and producer of audio magic, Ash is going to tell you, me, and everybody listening 
what today's film is really all about. It's been 100 episodes of my musings on cinema, and I see it only fitting that I return to an old hobby horse of mine, love. I wish to present to you, our listeners, and the greater horror community a contentious yet compelling argument. Evil Dead isn't a movie, it's a letter. A love letter. Evil Dead is an epistolary communication that eschews the pen and page in favor of a 16mm camera and a lifetime supply of corn syrup. It pens a letter of agonized love to the cinematic and televisual arts that inspired it, as well as to the often grueling labor of filmmaking. This book is bound in human flesh, the human flesh of the actors who were injured on set, penned in the blood both real and fake that soaked into the floorboards of a now-lost cabin in the hills of Tennessee. This is a romance not of hands held and soft words spoken, but of a boundary-straining exuberance that tests and cracks against the edges of the mind. For, dear listener, love is not only the warmth of companionship, it is also a challenge only taken up by those with hearts full of a demon-possessed bravery. Love is a gauntlet thrown against a world that would see it burn to cinders like a shabby cabin in a time-lost Appalachian town in Tennessee. It is only through this venturing into a wild and unknown place that we can hope to rekindle the fires of love, to pen our own letters to our forebears and to hazard the curse that comes with rebuilding the long memory. As we exit the poetry of my ramblings, I think it's only wise to visit a moment with an artist who has more to do with today's film than many give credit. Laying dead more than 200 years before this film was unleashed upon the world, William Blake wrote, You never know what is enough unless you know what is more than enough. Join us for our 100th episode as we discover a knowledge that is more than enough about today's film, The Evil, Evil Dead! dead. Uh, the Evil Dead is The Evil Dead is just a lot of fun. It is just... Um, a landmark, I think, in low-budget filmmaking generally, not just within horror, um, and is just endlessly inventive and enjoyable, uh, and as we will go on to discuss, deeply gooey in all of the best ways. Uh, Evil Dead rules, uh, and I'm so excited we get to talk about it for episode 100. I I'm really happy that we somehow saved this movie for one hundred episodes of this show, um, and I can't yeah I can't think of a single better way to celebrate one hundred episodes than a movie that has a main character that has my name. So I'm just gonna soak in the moment here. <laughs> we are gonna be talking an awful lot about Ash, and I think and how Ash good is gonna and be handsome and talented and and wonderful and. <laughs> And I think Ash and, is going to be okay with that. <laughs> and, and utterly, utterly cowardly, completely incompetent. <laughs> um, well, let's, you know, if we're going to do this, let's do this properly. And let's kind of take a step back before we get into, into the film. And maybe we can start by kind of contextualizing this film a little bit. Getting into the key players in actually kind of producing this thing and putting it out into the world. And, of course, just how the hell they managed to get this made. Yeah, I, I, really, I really think in order to, to understand Evil Dead, you really need to understand the, uh, the context of its production. Well, what's, what's a materialist history of Evil Dead? <laughs> well, yeah, let's do it. So, so first off, uh, the, the film was primarily made by uh, Robert Bobby Tappert, 
Sam Raimi and Bruce Campbell. Uh, three high school friends who would go on to become three college friends. They made this movie in their early 20s. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's the quintessential group of friends getting together to explore their love of cinema and, and their filmmaking. Their, their film history is largely inspired by uh, intense horror movies like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but uh, simultaneously uh, really, you know, kind of some of the high watermarks of camp, like The Three Stooges. And you can see that uh, all throughout the, the cinematography of these three. Uh, prior, to, prior to this, they made a movie called It's Murder, um, which is just, just a, a murder mystery movie. And then we have Within the Woods, which was a, it's a 30-minute featurette that's essentially a proof of concept for Evil Dead. Uh, they, they made Within the Woods to kind of show it to potential investors as a way to, to <laughs> trick them into giving a bunch of teens their money. <laughs> I... You see, like, the more I think about this, the more I just genuinely, I find this so endearing. Uh, and, like, we've we've said this before, right? We've said this before in the context of talking about Birdemic, that, honestly, its existence is kind of inspiring. Uh, but also, because, but I mean that in a kind of, like, tongue-in-cheek way, but genuinely, the existence of Evil Dead is, is in all sincerity, just so inspiring this idea there's a kind of like there is a kind of romance right about it you know this idea of like the friends that you grew up with and you will watch the same like goofy movies and you will stayed up and you watch the latest like midnight screening and then you're like holy shit we should make a movie and, and right. you, don't, you don't really know how to do that but you go well who can help pay for it <laughs> and and you show them you show them the little super eight films that you've been making and anyone that you think is basically a grown up and might have some disposable income you go to and you try and get them to give you some money i, I honestly the the story of how this film came to be and how Raimi and Bruce and Rob got this like off the ground in all like is so genuinely deeply inspiring you know if you want to make a movie Go do it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, I I, could, I couldn't agree more. Um, there there is something to be said about friends coming together and what they can accomplish if they just keep trying until it works. <laughs> Absolutely. Our our podcast notwithstanding, because <laughs> <laughs> we still don't really know what we're doing. <laughs> no, we, we we still we so we're still within the within the woods phase of of the uh, horror vanguard Evil Dead trajectory. <laughs> um. You know, they, they made Within the Woods um, as the kind of proof of concept. They tried to get, like, producers to sign on, and everyone was like, hey, you seem like a nice bunch of kids, but we're not giving you serious amounts of money. Uh, but this is, it is true, isn't it, that they ended up basically just asking pretty much anyone they could they could find yes, anyone to and cut everyone. them a check. <laughs> yep, and, like, I know, I know there's, like, a lot of personal investment, too. You know, like, Bruce Campbell got the co-producer credit, after he, I think, I think it was he mortgaged their family's property in northern Michigan. Yeah, they put put his house up as collateral, right? And so, so there's a lot of there's a lot of you, you on so many levels. They are in this movie, not not just literally as yes. actors, but their yeah. histories, their thoughts. Like like this is a very tightly produced film. <laughs> <laughs> of course, we have the iconic cabin that Evil Dead is set in. Uh, that's been. Lost to history and time, uh, it's somewhere in the hills of Tennessee. 
Uh, there's a bunch of potential locations that people claim you can go on eBay and find bricks from the fireplace that are probably not legitimate. Uh, and the, the infamous, I am shocked. Uh, oh, yeah, I am, I am so surprised to find that out. <laughs> I was at a horror convention once and I saw a guy peddling bricks from this fireplace that were very clearly bricks that he had, like, recently acquired and then, like, like like threw on the ground to damage them and then like maybe rub some charcoal against they were very clearly like fake so so the world the world is replete with relics from this film that lack genuine authenticity yeah but that that adds so much to the movie right because allegedly uh uh Raimi and other people involved with the film buried a time capsule in a glass box beneath the the cabin which which has never been recovered and and people hunt for it and they look for these things and there's there's so much this movie has mythic proportions. It's more than just an the awkward 16 millimeter horror movie uh, shot by a bunch of young filmmakers before they really had a strong grasp of what they were doing. Yeah, you know, it's 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 its own gigantic. It's it's uh, its own force, if you will. No, completely, completely, and of course the fact that they found this cabin because they couldn't afford location scouts and they were just <laughs> they were just kind of like bombing around the woods looking for somewhere spooky <laughs> uh, it, so it has this kind of there's this kind of combination of like just youthful kind of exuberance with what has become a kind of aesthetic and cultural mythos that comes afterwards absolutely and, and so much so much of the poetry of evil that is just pure chance too you know, like the the bridge, the the iconic bridge that curls up like a dead man's hand once the the evil spirits are unleashed in the woods. Uh, that's a, that was a real bridge that uh, the owner of the property allowed them to destroy because it was abandoned and unused, and it, they, they just happened they just happened to get lucky and their their particular shooting location had a bridge nearby that they could just also destroy. <laughs> what I love is like so much of this film's like existence is just predicated upon like Rob or Sam Raimi just going. Hey, can we do this? And somebody going, "Yeah, why not?" <laughs> there, 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 there's an innocence about this, definitely, that comes with that. Yeah, I, I think, <laughs> I think you know, it has. I mean, the Evil Dead was kind of uh, labeled as one of the one as uh, as one of the video nasties in England. Mm -hmm. But it, like, from that point of view, this is a deeply like just endearing innocent movie <laughs> there is i mean there is an exception to that which we will get onto when we get into more of the details of the film itself but like the fact that this was just made by by a, like a group of kids going wouldn't it be cool if we could do this and then seeing if they could get away with it it's just really endearing and the fact that like this, this this film lives on in so many ways till today it wasn't until 2016 that the film was officially unbanned in germany like that's just wild <laughs> it, it's it is wild to think that trump has been longer than this movie has been legally viewable on planet earth <laughs> like like that phrase alone is enough to like that induce lovecraftian madness in someone from the 20s <laughs> <laughs> but so this film this film was released uh, at first to local audiences in michigan the hometown of our of our three primary protagonists <laughs> Um, and and as the film was released, let's release our discussion of it. Um, yeah, so they did they did quite a few test screenings of this. Oh, should should we talk about the fact that if it weren't for Stephen King, this film might never have gotten picked up? 
Oh yeah, yeah. That is, that is a huge, huge random. It's it's part of like the random series of events that allowed Evil Dead to become the iconic movie that it is today. Because King, so like, it does pretty well. And so principal photography takes what a couple of months? I think it's like forty to fifty days. That they're out yeah, the yeah. Shoot, shooting on location at the cabin. Yeah, and then they take the next year and a half to edit it together. Um, which I actually think you can really see in the film itself. There is not like an inch of, there's not like a, a frame that is wasted. Everything yes. is there that is, is purposeful. And, then and we start Bruce doing Campbell definitely doesn't age three years in front of our very eyes. <laughs> uh, I mean, let's, let's not poke too many holes. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then, uh, so they do the test screenings, which go pretty well. And then Stephen King gives it like this glowing review, which is what helps get it like major distribution. So it's it's sort of weird that in in many ways Stephen King has had a bigger influence on the direction of American horror based on who he endorses and reviews than any of the work he's produced himself. I think I think that is single handedly the most scathing and accurate criticism of Stephen King I've heard in a long time. <laughs> yeah, and if you if you if you you can go on YouTube and look up any of the TV spots for this movie for when it was coming out, uh, because back in the day we had this thing called television that would advertise, and those advertisements include upcoming cinematic releases. But sounds one, fake, but okay. Right? Yeah, it, it sounds that's some sci-fi stuff, but like, um, each, each one of these had like. They all have that pull quote from Stephen King where he's talking about how this is like one of the goriest and most intense movies he's ever seen. Because if you have that pull quote, you're going to be using it everywhere. I mean, why wouldn't you? So, what did you think about the movie itself? We, we've, spent, we've spent nearly 20 minutes now talking about the context of this film because in and of a way, it's almost like it's its own story that exists parallel to the film. There's the film itself and then there's the kind of like legendary adventurous and mythic proportions of the story of the film's creating. Yeah. The fact that the, you know, that the actors went through hell on set because, you know, is it wasn't it uh, Bruce who like ends up like falling over and like ruining their ankle and Raimi is like poking it to see if they can make, they can make Bruce a little more annoyed. So it'll come across on screen. Yes. The couple, the couple of scenes where you see, uh, Bruce Campbell's character limping is because his ankle is actually sprained. <laughs> uh, oh, and there, and there's, there, there's, there's one scene where a demon grabs his face and the blood that's dripping out of his face is, is real blood because the, the, uh, the fake shampoo grabbed his face actually cut into him. <laughs> uh, I, 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 I think actually that's a really important point to talk about, to kind of lead us in, right, to this, the discussion of the film which is its big focus on practical in-camera effects. Um, I, I'm just going to... Maybe the best way to put it is this. This is a very gooey horror movie. Deeply. <laughs> this is, and what do you think about that? There is so much corn syrup in this film. It, there is so yes. much ooze. <laughs> there is so much goo. There is so much, to use a phrase that we talked about, in the Arcane Book Club of Horrors, there is so much splatter going on. What do you think about that? I, I love how intensely fluidic this movie is. 
I love I love how gooey it is. I love how sticky it is. Um, I, I I love I love how this intersects with like behind the scenes stories of like. Uh, so they filmed this during the winter, even though you really can't see that in the filming because they were careful to make the winter part of it not visible. It's supposed to look like fall. Um, but like there are, there are anecdotal tales of like Bruce Campbell's shirt being so soaked with like corn syrup and frozen solid that he'll like move and the shirt will crack open. I love I love that. I love the gooey, sticky surreality of all of this fake blood mixed with all of the real blood and injury that happens on set. It's kind of like like this whole this whole film exists to to kind of challenge the usually rigid space between the creation of a piece of art and the piece of artwork itself. Like in this in this text, they're kind of fluidic and interchangeable. Yes, I I completely agree, and I think uh, I actually think the kind of visceral splatter of it is it's part of the reason why this is such a fun film you know uh this is one of the things that Raimi has been consistently good at is making films which are like physically enjoyable to sit through and i think <laughs> you can see it here um where it's like it's this splattery oozy fluidic mess uh and you know you can tell that it's real it has a kind of visceral reality to it but it's not it's not a kind of repulsive abject goo you know it's this like excessive like almost carnivalesque spectacular of like goo and ooze and like just liters of fake blood everywhere it, it really it really does i mean like like this film is tethered back to like the the grand guignol in like paris you know like like it is it is a spectacle of of gore it's not it's not an attempt at like verisimilitude it's it's an exercise in trying to gross people out <laughs> yeah absolutely absolutely and you know it's done with this kind of like verve and energy and uh, tr- sense of humor that means like if it were if it were like a stage show, you would be desperate to sit in the splash zone of right? Evil Dead. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's it's like a it's like a guar concert. You want to be up front because you want to go home sticky. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I think it's interesting. Like it, you know, we're gonna get onto maybe more the the uh, the films which are influenced by Evil Dead or the films which are direct references to Evil Dead. What a lot of them don't seem to have is they. Do, they they have this abject fluidity, this fluidity or kind of like excessive gore, which is like designed to repulse. But this is disgusting, but it's kind of disgusting that makes you go, ah, that's so cool at the same time. Yeah, I think I think what a lot of what a lot of the films that attempt to be success, successors to Evil Dead uh, fail at the understanding um, of the text of this movie when they try and recreate its energy. Yeah. Is that Evil Evil Dead is a disgusting, scary movie that is incredibly fun to go through. Um yes, Evil absolutely. Dead it's it's closer to a haunted house. Right? Like like Texas Chainsaw Massacre is an exercise in terror, right? Like the, the movie is like it's guttural, it's realistic, it's it's disconcerting. Evil Dead embraces a fun. You know, like this is, this is one of the the few movies. Um, a lot of the Friday the Thirteenth movies, ironically enough, because we're talking going to be talking about movies that are inspired by Evil Dead. 
Um, but a lot of the, the or not Friday the 13th, I'm sorry, Nightmare on Elm Street. A lot of the Nightmare on Elm Street movies um, also have that same energy where it's like, okay, we can gross you out, we can scare you, but we can still be really fun while we're doing it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think I think that's something that just makes this film, like you say, it's a it's a it's a it's a it's a fun house. You know, it's like, and it it happens so quickly. The opening, by the time we get through the opening twenty minutes, you're like, the ride is on. Like, <laughs> <laughs> let's let's go. <laughs> I, I do I do really appreciate that about this movie that it gives us like that good twenty minutes of onboarding. <clears throat> before it goes totally off the rails and and i like that you know it's it reminds me a lot of like like waiting in line at the haunted house you know you know you you sat down for evil dead you know you're gonna get spooked but you've got you've got to wait in line first you know you've got all these people these screaming people walking out of the haunted house and you want to know what happened but like there's that there's that great building of tension that goes on in those first like 10 or 20 minutes of this movie yeah absolutely absolutely um and then we get to the kind of eruptive gooey splattery mess um and there's a kind of key question that i I wanted to get your opinion on which is why do our characters end up oozing and vomiting two percent milk (laughs) (laughs) well i think i think there are many answers to this question and the practical answer is because sam raimi wanted to dodge the ratings board and and rather than vomiting up more blood, which more blood, worse rating, um, they, they they wanted to ride the line of of getting like the X rating, uh, so they they swapped it out, and then they're they're now all of the demons like ooze and, and puke blood and like all of this kind of like breakfast looking goo. <laughs> but I think I think there's there there's there's some great metaphorical quality to that right because on, on the surface level it definitely signals to us the viewer that these these possessed people have become something other. Right, you know, like they 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 have shed their humanity both in a in an exterior level because they're possessed, but this isn't the kind of possession that comes with like the Exorcist or something, mm. where where there's still a human trapped inside somewhere. This is a like a totalizing change because now they're like, you know, like erupting with milk. <laughs> but I think I think we can take it like like a, another another layer deeper. We we can like really like puzzle what it means to erupt with like milk and i think like this film has some really strange lines when it comes to connecting to animality and nature right because the the force which is uh you know the 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 name for the uh whatever the camera's like low to the ground moving really quickly and whooshing that's that's the force that's the kind of like disembodied spirit of the demon and it's it's really natural it's 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 within the woods you know like when cheryl runs back to the cabin she's attacked by the woods themselves but no like like there's there's this possessive force and this possessive quality that nature has whether whether it's it's kind of the infamous scene out in the woods with the vines or it's it's the kind of metaphoric possession itself nature is trying to re-enter the human in this mm. and so we have this this really complicated strain that comes with that and and the realization that like you know, a lot of people in the world like can't can't digest you know milk they're lactose intolerant you know milk consuming the milk of other animals is still a weird thing that humans have tried to adjust to biologically over the course of our species and like there there's something about this that kind of like puzzles that line of like where does milk come from you know like like that that vomiting up of 2% milk from the demons is in a way like a great vehicle for the discussion of like commodity fetishism right 
because like we we are so disconnected from from farming right you know that we don't recognize the kind of inhumanity and the horror that comes with a factory farming setting which is where the vast majority of of milk and indeed greater animal products are produced you know that that having demons just just barf it up into the world or it spews out of their eye sockets is is pretty great synecdoche for the world in which we live I was not I was not expecting when we started talking about Evil Dead to end up having uh, a very serious discussion about commodity fetishism and the horrors of factory farming. And yet, here we are. Um, maybe the best bit of vegan uh, political propaganda that could be produced in the uh, uh, early notes. 1980s. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I actually think that's a really interesting point, right? And what that shows, and I think it shows it in a really interesting way, is the idea that artistic limitation or artistic kind of like constraint produces creativity. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a practical reason, right? There's a practical reason why they uh, are possessed to end up like oozing and spewing uh, milk and it's about ratings and that kind of thing. But also it it allows for like really interesting metaphoric readings of the art itself. So you might go, well, you know, they just did it because they didn't have, you know, they were running out of corn syrup. But it's like, well, that doesn't matter because that means that we can actually have this really interesting discussion. No, I, I think you're, I think you're completely right with that. Like, it, you know, like this is this is necessity demanding innovation on the part of these filmmakers. Yeah. You know, if if, the, if these if these uh, uh, strapping young lads would have been, uh, I, I don't know, millionaire fail sons. They, they yep. would have had the money to contract out to people to accomplish a much more pretty and well-packaged uh, piece of cinema. And they wouldn't have had to worry about these things like, okay, like we have to mix up our blood with coffee or with coffee creamer and, <laughs> and caro syrup and like have, have like milk shooting out of people. <laughs> yeah. I mean, necessity is the mother of invention, but also necessity and constraint are actually good for horror. You know, at no point, watching watch it i watched it um again yesterday and no point watching it was i like oh this looks so fake you know because the whole thing is constructed so well that even now you know decades after the film is out you watch it if you if you've never seen it for somehow <laughs> if you've never seen it somehow watch it and see what happens to you because i guarantee that you will be invested you will buy into it and you you might if you you know particularly cynical go oh well this could this would look so much better if it was done now but actually making it look better would make it less effective Ab abs absolutely uh, a better better realism computer effects like they would they would they would spoil the kind of honesty that that makes this movie so viscerally effective and how many times do we have to say realism is not realistic I don't go to a horror movie because I want verisimilitude. I don't want. I don't go to a horror movie because I want something that looks like perfectly real. You know, I I go to a horror movie because I want. I want to be taken. I want to be kind of like imaginatively engaged and taken into a kind of new space. And there's a there's a capitalist teleology that goes on here, right? Because the, the, the quest for realism constantly demands better and more capable technology. 
So you can't you can't achieve the kind of realism you can today shooting handheld on sixteen in the woods in Tennessee. No, of course you can't. Um, and, <laughs> of and like can't. so so this uh, prizing of realism over everything else doesn't benefit cinema as an art. It benefits no. cinema as a business. Because you know, it's like that Borges short story. You know, the map that to mm, make yeah. it mm-hmm. to make it the the map ends up covering literally everything in existence. It's yeah, it's, it's a cartographer's problem. Scale. The most accurate map is the thing itself. So we don't want accuracy. We want we want um, the grotesque. We want hyper reality. We want something co- like imaginatively uh, consistent. But but we don't need to be seduced by this, as you put it, like the 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 end of you know technology over art the sacrificing of um aesthetics for capitalist return we don't need that welcome to our new spin-off podcast the luddite horror hour <laughs> <clears throat> um but yeah i think i think like so in, in addition to being really fluidic and gooey and oozing and i think there being a lot worth discussing in that um, we we have like this other tactile level that this movie is just enrobing us with, and that's in the audio design. And I know you had some thoughts for that. The sound design in this film is so good, right? The sound. Uh, I well, I wanted to I wanted to get your thoughts really on this film. This film, I think, has pioneered the use of the scary whoosh. <laughs> there's a there's a lot of super intense whooshing noises. Um, and I, uh, my kind of thought on it actually connects to what you were talking about in the context of animality and the and the, and the role of nature, um, because in a way that's that's intimately connected to the demonic presence in this film is is nature. Nature is the ultimate other. Nature is ultimately hostile and completely indifferent to us as humans, which is not how we're conditioned to think about nature. Right? Um, we're conditioned to think of nature as something that we can master. Or is something that we are in so in to some degree in in some control of, but you know how this film opens and closes shows that nature is like literally faster and more dangerous and more um, powerful than we are, and a lot of that is communicated through sound design. Though, what do you think about the scary whooshes? <laughs> So, so most of the scary whooshing you hear in in this movie is uh, Sam Raimi's distorted voice making spooky whooshing noises mixed in with uh, <laughs> some wind sound effects taken from a Hitchcock movie. Love it! I love everything about this. <laughs> um, uh, so that that really that really takes the sting out of it. But um, no, I think it, I think it's really interesting, right? Because the we never really see the demons. You know, we we don't we don't know what the Kandarian demons look like. In, in Evil Dead, the spirit that's in the woods, this force, right? It's it's this disembodied thing that we can only know through this howling, semi-human uh, wind and its occasional uh, effect on the real world as it slams doors shut and flies around people. And there's something, you know, like at the, at the end of the movie, uh, Ash can see it, but we can't see what he sees. So we don't know what this thing is that's rushing at him. And I think... I think there's something fantastic about this, and I'm going to get into this more when we talk uh, about <laughs> when we talk about uh, possibly the greatest car ever made, the 1973 Oldsmobile Delta 88. <laughs> yep. 
But uh, there, there's something about this that speaks to the American horror tradition specifically and our kind of unique relationship with wooded spaces and with mm. nature, right? Mm. Because when you go back to the very core of American fiction, like, like what is the, the, the key contention, right? Like when, when uh, colonial forces started landing in America, it was, it was the terrifying fear of what's in the woods, whether that's Native people who were fighting to try and preserve their lands and, and their cultural identities, or whether that was just a, the, the strictly hostile environment of a world that they did not know how to live in. There's always been this fear of the forest. There's always been an association I mean, between the woods and the demonic. I mean, one of the very first American Gothic stories is Nathaniel Hawthorne's young Goodman Brown. Hell yeah. Right, so where Goodman Brown, a good Puritan colonialist settler, leaves the safe confines of the uh, of the settlement and wanders out into nature. And, and what happens is that he immediately comes across Satan himself. <laughs> like, it's, it is it is inscribed in the very kind of like foundational DNA of American horror to fundamentally find uh, rural spaces as potentially demonic. Um, and so the, yeah, this 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 ties right in to <laughs> to to the to the seventy three Oldsmobile um, that you know has been come to be known as the classic. It's kind of a fan icon. It's it's in the Evil Dead TV show. Everybody who's a fan of the Evil Dead knows this particular car. <laughs> but I think I think like the car plays a compelling role in this because this movie has contrasting images because the, the car is nothing if not a symbol of American exceptionalism, industrial power, and freedom. Right, that is especially in the American context of of cars and vehicles and driving. Right, you know, every to this day, every car commercial is about how much that car will liberate you. You know, whether yeah. that's whether that's the freedom to have luxury and to travel in ease with a high end vehicle, or that's like you know a Dodge Challenger or like a really big pickup truck giving you the freedom offered by power. You know, it still plays into these fantasies. Owning your own personal vehicle is both a necessity in the States because we lack any meaningful public transit and uh, a way to move. And I think this movie plays on that interestingly, right? Because these guys are from Michigan, you know, like, like the former car capital of the United States. Detroit used to be a booming city of industry, but when the automobile companies left, it became a hollowed out husk. And now it's, it's really in dire straits because of the flight of capital. And you see that with the, with the car, like the car is such a good mythological component of that because it can transport them into the woods. But once it once it gets into this natural setting, once it's returned to to the wild places, the places that still, you know, it can exist without the claws of capitalism digging and scratching into them, it becomes totally useless. You know, like the car, the car can't free them anymore because the car can't navigate these woods, not not in the same way a person could or perhaps like a horse or something. And so you get this you get this straining tension between America's endless history of what's in those hills and America's contemporary reality where where the myth of the car has been crumbling around us and where that edifice is gone. Yes, absolutely. You know, this idea that there there is a kind of tension and there's a tension that's actually literally embodied in the car, right? In that very early scene when they're driving along and it's like your steering wheel you should yes. get your steering wheel fixed right they they almost die before before the story even gets supernatural they're almost just killed in an automobile accident um so no i completely agree and it does tie into that weird ambivalence that 
there's always been in the American cultural imaginary about the rural, which is both acquisitive and fearful. You know, it's something that's there to be tamed or subdued or taken, but also it's a space which is like deeply dangerous and hostile and and you know, it gets expressed in its purest form in the cultural ideal ideal of colonialist frontierism, right? Which mm-hmm. You know, it's the mainstream example of that is in the American Western. Because what do you need? You need to be the kind of like rugged individualist libertarian hero who can go out and subdue the frontier. Whereas actually what horror does is expose the kind of uh, neurotic fears that run through that cultural idealized form. And you see it really powerfully and really potently in this film. Absolutely. And it's, it's so telling that like this, this was filmed in Appalachia, you know, like this, this was filmed at the site of uh, so much violence in the initial colonial expansion of America. And then Mm -hmm. a return of that violence as, as the people who settled Appalachia were, were turned into an extraction colony as strip mining has destroyed one of the oldest mountain ranges in the planet and like these these people's homes and these hunting grounds that they've had for generations get turned into golf courses. So there's this there's this layered history of terror and violence, and this movie is set right on top of that as these like college kids from Michigan go have a fun cabin vacation in a place that used to be somebody's home. Yeah, why wouldn't there be like violent supernatural forces at work? Right, like the the very the ground we walk upon is haunted by the history that necessitated its creation, and this movie is a confrontation with that fundamental truth. Yeah, precisely. I think I think that 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 shifting in perspective and that that tilting of how we look at the natural world is is really embodied by the kind of POV shots and the Dutch angles that this movie was showing off. Uh, what, what are your thoughts about that? Okay, because I, I, I love the cinematography. I love the shot selection in this film. I love it so much. Like, people probably know the famous quote from Roger Ebert's review of Starship Troopers, where he says, The director has learned that sometimes filmmakers will tilt their camera to the side. But he does does not know why. And all I want to say is, Sam Raimi knows why. (laughs) Sam Raimi knows why. (laughs) So there there are... Oh, I was just gonna say, I feel, I feel like one day Robert, Roger Ebert's ghost is gonna attack us like a Kandarian demon for all the <laughs> shit talking we're doing. <laughs> there are two things that I really wanted to talk about, which is uh, the use of Dutch tilts um, in in the film and the use of POV shots, because one of the most effective things is that a lot of the shots involving Kandarian demons are from the demon's point of view. There's a lot of shots like peeking out from under the trapdoor. There's a lot of shots from like newly possessed bodies. And I think they're super effective. And also, um, they they kind of lean into the truism that it's much more like imaginatively impactful to see the impact of something scary than to see the scary thing itself. You know, that's absolutely sh- showing, you know, but you do it in moderation. And actually, you keep these things scarier the longer that, like, you actually force the audience to look through the demon's eyes, as it were, and you get to see the character's reaction to it. 
which not only is a good practical solution to the limitations of the of the effects that you've got to work with, but it actually implicates the viewer into the story that you're that you're constructing on screen, which is just amazing. And the constant use of Dutch tilts, um, well, not constant, but actually very well chosen use of Dutch tilts, is a great way of kind of like destabilizing the audience from a fixed point of view uh, and making the whole thing feel much more sort of unstable, much more um, kind of queasy watching it. What do you think? I, I, I love everything you just said. As usual, I love everything you have to say because you're brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> But um, so nice. what, what would our 100th episode be without uh, the uh, John hashtag at the Liquid Guy appreciation hour? <laughs> um, but uh, I, I think I think two two major things when I think of this, I think of uh, one, the fundamental truth that monsters aren't horrific because of what they are. Monsters are horrific because of what they what they do and what that means for us. You know, like like there, there's a reason why the chestburster in Alien is horrifying in Alien. But in Spaceballs, it's a hilarious gag, you yeah. know, and it's purely because of it's the same monster. It's just changed context. And now it's funny, right? You know, it's, it's the difference between like Dracula on a cereal and Dracula biting into your neck. Yes, absolutely. And I think I think that, that those POV shots from the monster's perspective really convey that. But they also remind us that there are competing points of view. You know, there, there are there are contesting ways to see the world and events of Evil Dead. And we'll, we'll we'll get into this uh, towards towards the end in uh, section E, subsection uh, Roman numeral four, subsection one of our notes. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we'll we'll get in, we'll get into the demons uh, as we as we exit our episode. Um, but speaking speaking of demons, the, this movie sired more than just the demons that that possess these hapless college students. Uh, they also possessed a lot of other filmmakers down the road. And I know that links to other films and plot and genre are some of the things that you really wanted to talk about. Yeah, I mean, I love I love that this film depends upon you kind of really knowing and understanding horror movies. Like this is mm, yeah. this is this is a film which is in direct conversation with a whole lot of other films. Um it's kind of meta text, which I think is actually really interesting. Like the biggest and clearest thematic influence is toby hooper's texas chainsaw massacre but where texas chainsaw is as you've said is like very kind of grim and very realistic and very deliberately terrifying and hugely effective this is very splattery and and, and slightly campy and tongue-in-cheek but i think it's really fascinating that horror you can make these kind of metatextual illusions without destroying the kind of intellectual and imaginative coherence of the text as a whole you know there is a kind of postmodernism at work here but it's a postmodernism which never falls into like just simple ironic pastiche mm-hmm. um and i think that's really interesting i think that says something about the generic potential of horror you know we can kind of constantly nudge until there are cracks in the fourth wall but like we we don't need to break it, and and we we can choose not to, and the whole thing remains kind of coherent. It remains an integrated work, and I think that's super interesting. Yeah, I I think you're completely correct, and I think one of my favorite examples in Evil Dead 
is that they literally recreate one of the most famous Three Stooges scenes from their from their uh, episode "A Plumbing We Will Go." You know, when when <laughs> when Ash is down in the cellar and he gets blasted in the in the face with blood from the pipe, yeah, like that's 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 a that's almost a one to one recreation of a Three Stooges gag. It's a Stooges bit, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's it's a, it's a Stooges bit, and like, um, I if. <laughs> For, for better or for worse, if you know the work of the Three Stooges and the racism and sexism it contains, um, I, I grew up watching the Three Stooges and I have like all of their skits logged into my brain <laughs> in, in the cursed archives of my memory. Yeah. And like, I remember the first time I saw Evil Dead, I was watching it with a bunch of my friends in high school and like that scene happens and like some of my friends are grossed out and others are just kind of shocked and I'm just like falling over laughing because I'm like, oh, that's a plumbing we will go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and like, you're absolutely right. Like, it's it's almost Deridian on this level, right? Because you you have this participation in genre without belonging to any. You know, like this this film is a horror movie. This film is a splatter movie. This film is a camp comedy. It's a throwback and send up of like nineteen thirties Americana. Like this movie exists over so many different spaces and in them and actively engaged in them simultaneously. And that makes this text so refreshing. It gives it that kind of replay value because there's always something new to find in here. Yeah, and it also means that like it works on multiple levels for multiple different kinds of viewers. Yeah. So so there's like there's like people who would go to every midnight screening who'll love this and will go, Oh yeah, that's uh oh the bit with the skulls, that's Texas Chainsaw Massacre. <laughs> uh or there are there are people who are like raised on like classic American comedy who'll go, Oh, it's a, it's a Stooges bit. And at the same time it's able to through this, through this hybrid, hybrid kind of um, uh, genre fluidity, it's able to kind of create itself as something new and and entirely coherent. Absolutely. So why why do you think the, this film works so well when other films who tried who tried to like pick up the torch have have ultimately wound up being burnt by it? I I have a kind of theory on this. Let's let's and hear it. So this is a film about a bunch of like young twenty somethings who go into the woods and horrible things happen to them. And it was made by a bunch of twenty somethings who went into the woods and some pretty horrible stuff happened to them. And I think the big thing that makes this feel kind of real and authentic is Sam Raimi described making this film as like a rite of passage. Um, it's basically him learning how to direct and film a feature-length motion picture. Um, and I think that's the thing that makes this work. You know, it's not made by a bunch of like millionaire producers who hire some 20-something no, no, non-union actors and a director who's like worked for 15 years to go into the woods and like slap a 90 minute film together it's made by it's made by and for the people who are in it and that's what makes it work it has it has an authenticity to it that a lot of other films just haven't been able to capture it's it's completely honest in what it is and what it's trying to do and it's and its influence set is is so organic yeah, you know, like and so like, and so, like mm-hmm. films that are trying to do this, they just come off as cynical. Yeah, yeah. The the, the scene with the ripped up poster of The Hills Have Eyes, 
Yes, mm. yes. You know, absolutely. like like that 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 was that was their saying. Like, hey, you thought the hills have eyes? Had some spooky spooky scenes? Well, <laughs> buckle up. <laughs> and like, but but that 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 literally happens a couple seconds before they do a Three Stooges bit. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> like 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 that that is the layering that we're that we're dealing with here. So so there it, it's more. It's not like they saw the hills have eyes. No, like yeah, we're gonna one up that. We're gonna make the hills have eyes part two infinite blood you know like so so there's there's this organic honesty that kind of comes with what they're doing that makes it just so fantastic yeah i could i could not agree with you more so i couldn't agree with you more uh with that said i think i think it would be a good time to to unleash upon the world Quite possibly one of the most brilliant things I have ever heard another human say. So if, if you're ready to take take the center stage, I'll fire up the limelight and we can right. we can knock some socks off. Uh, okay. Drum, drum roll, please. Uh, here's my hot take about this film. Bruce Campbell is a final girl. Shock. People dropping glasses, fainting. Those are all the sounds you just heard. <laughs> Screaming, rioting in the streets. <laughs> uh, so, the character of character so, so, of Ash. Oh, go on. Yeah. Sorry, go on, go on, go on. No, go on. Oh, I, I was gonna, I was gonna, I was gonna set you up. Uh, so that that is uh, uh, quite contentious, uh, uh, good sir. Please, please continue. Okay, so the character of Ash. Uh, infinitely memeable, uh, played by the legend Bruce Campbell, um, is a final girl. And here's why. <laughs> this, this feels like this feels like it would be a good like a clickbait video. Not clickbait. Um no, I, I actually think that, that uh Carol Clover's model from Men, Women and Chainsaws maps really well onto this film, but with um a gender flipped protagonist. So for the majority of the movie, Ash is pretty agential, not really very agential, doesn't do a great deal, but is very much considered by the camera to be the kind of prettiest one. Uh, the camera is very interested in Bruce Campbell. Um, then there is the descent into the cellar, into the dark place, into the nightmare pit, the kind of, Lacanian and Freudian rebirth of the character, the acquisition of the powerful phallic symbol of the chainsaw, uh, and of course the uh, the escape at the end. Right, um, the a fairly kind of virginal uh, character um, as well. Definitely not the kind of stereotypical male jock that. I think that's really, really important to highlight really quick is that like these are these are a bunch of college kids going to a cabin in the wood and like a, a lesser film would would have would have just had them having sex all the time because that's what college kids in horror movies do. But very much supporting your theory, like Ash's whole arc is that he wants to, to give his girlfriend a nice present. Yeah, like that's that, that's that's his motivation. He's not he's not like, oh, I'm going to give this to her and then I'll get laid. You know, he's he's like, no. oh, I, I like my girlfriend. I'm going to give her a gift. It, it echoes that final girl kind of uh, virginal purity. Um, and yeah, it that you know, so so our kind of jock 
male prote- uh, character is just murked super quickly and doesn't do a whole lot through the rest of the film. And it is up to Ash to self-actualize, to acquire the the powerful masculine uh, phallic symbol of the chainsaw to use as the weapon. <laughs> just, just, sorry, sorry, just, 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 a phrase, just, just a phrase that it's up to Ash to self-actualize and acquire the powerful masculine weapon. And I'm just sitting here like, yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I have thought about this. And my my contentious hot take on this film is that Bruce Campbell is a final girl. <laughs> I, I I think I think your reading is completely accurate. I mean, he does not he he does not become what we would commonly write off as a masculine hero until Army of Darkness, until the third installment in this franchise. Precisely. Right when he becomes fully possessed by masculine bravado, even in Evil Dead Two, is he starting to kind of like come to terms with his fate? Like that, that Evil Dead Two is more of like, it's a coming of age. It's a him realizing that like he is just going to be on the receiving end <laughs> of horrible demonic possession for the rest of his days. Yeah. But yeah, I, I think I think as as ridiculous as it sounds at the surface level, this theory is is incredibly well defended by the text of these films. And I know you you had some kind of thoughts about this in relation to how um, Raimi and Campbell wanted to kind of portray the character as well. Yeah, yeah. So like like uh, Sam Raimi, uh, Robert Tappert, and Bruce Campbell, uh, again, heavily influenced by the Three Stooges, making films together all throughout high school and college. These, you know, a very jovial group of guys playing pranks on each other uh, and stuff like that. If you read like their retellings of their experience as filmmakers together and things like that. If you watch this movie, Ash does literally nothing up until everyone else is dead. <laughs> he's, 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 he's entirely useless and incompetent. And the only thing uh, that, that makes him interesting is that he's, he, he wants to give a girl a gift. You know, yeah. outside of that, like you, you get like, I think the best scene that portrays this is when one of the demons is coming at him. And, and kind of like the more masculine uh, uh, character, Scott. Um. Ash is holding an axe, and Scott's like, hit her, kill her, chop her apart. And Ash is just like holding the axe. He's just paralyzed with fear. And Scott has to wrench it from his hands before saving the day. And I think, like, yeah. like you know, if you listen to like a lot of the director's commentary and Sam uh, Raimi uh, retelling his experience, like him and Robert Tappert both joke how like Ash is just weak and incompetent throughout the movie. Like, there's a couple scenes where he's like literally trapped under like three two by four boards. <laughs> as if those weights could could pin down a man <laughs> you know yeah he's he's constantly like having stuff fall on him he's constantly like like falling over and <laughs> and, and this and this incompetence like it, it completely pulls the rug under the idea that this movie is going to have like a, a masculine hero emerge and and save the day and even even when everything goes to shit, like what's what's like the first thing that Ash really strikes out and tries to do, you know, or one of the first things anyway. Like when Scott's dead, he, he's he's pouring water in, into Scott's mouth, even though Scott is clearly one one thousand percent dead at this point, and yeah, trying trying to nurse him back to dead. health. Like his his first clearly, real clearly possessed, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like this is the first thing that he's trying to do is is give someone medical attention. Um, and I think it's a pretty compelling. Uh, idea you know and it and it kind of shows that 
yeah, subsequent subsequent uh, films may have may have kind of like leaned into the masculinist bravado of it, but this is not a film that is interested in kind of portraying uh, these kind of normative, patriarchal, masculinized ideas. People, there's there's this tendency to uh do do <laughs> historical revisionism with evil dead and insert the ashley j williams from army of darkness into the original evil dead yeah you know he's where, where he's a sweet guy who wants yeah. to give his girl like a pretty necklace yeah he's, he's he, he isn't yet the like uh, uh hail to the king baby you know give me some sugar he's not that guy yet in yeah. his in his original films and people people forget the, the kind of uh, immature sincerity that he's got in these first movies, and they just kind of like go to the camp macho bravado that he is in the TV show. And I think that kind of brings up maybe uh, the kind of truly controversial aspect of this film, which I do think we should talk about quickly. Yes, yes. Um, which is one particular scene of this film, which. Um, I don't. I don't necessarily think we need to kind of go into explicit detail of what it's about, but let's just call it the tree scene. That's what it, what it is commonly known as the world over. <laughs> uh, yes. Um, and you know, we were talking about this before we started recording, and I think I was like, I really love this movie. I love this movie, and uh, watching it, as I say, big dumb smile on my face for ninety eight percent of the entire runtime. Uh, however, this scene, I was thinking about the reason why I, I kind of find this kind of like so unsettling is that it's tonally massively kind of mm-hmm. inconsistent because this scene is like is pretty gnarly. This scene is is like grim to, to, to watch. It doesn't have the same kind of like fun, upbeat energy. Um, and, and, you know, I'm not I'm not going to say like. You know, it's this kind of thing you can never do. It's like, honestly, having something that's kind of grim and really, like, genuinely horrifying has a place. And, you know, it can be done. Uh, there are lots of horror movies which kind of tackle this kind of stuff. But the tree scene, I just think, is 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 tonally inconsistent and is, is something that is, like, it puts a real sour note in the whole film. Yeah, no, I, I, I completely agree. And I think it's, like... It's it's a great example of filmmakers wanting to add some shock and some 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 sensationalism <laughs> into their films, but not having a good critical understanding of things like sexism, misogyny, the patriarchy. You know, because like the, this is this is where they went for a scene that would really disturb the audience when the the category of really disturb the audience is is a a borderless zone. It's it's a it's a cornucopia of nightmares. And yeah. and they went to uh, assaulting a woman, which I think yeah. it's like it's definitely it's the weakest point of the movie. You know, Sam Raimi has has reflected back on that as as a poor decision he made early in his career. I mean, what I found really interesting is that he said his aim is never like he he said that the thing that kind of made him think about it was that people said that it was really offensive. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's and he said that like his aim is never to offend people. Same as to like entertain people or gross people out or to scare people, but he's not there to like offend people. Um, 
and I, I kind of like admire in a way it's very similar to something that Pierce Haggard said, who um who directed Blood on Satan's Claw, which also has an incredibly infamous scene yeah. uh in, involving sexual violence and he's he he was also like you know, it was it was going too far, it was it was doing something because I thought it would get a rise out of an audience, not because I thought it was the right thing to do. And that's what this feels like. It feels like a kind of immature, edgy thing that was like, oh, this is really going to get people, instead of something that's like, this is the right thing to do that matches the rest of this film that we're making. Yeah, yeah, and I think we can we can contrast this to the scene in the 2013 remake. Because the 2013 remake, I think, uh, misses, misses the mark entirely on what makes an Evil Dead movie an Evil Dead movie. You know, like like it's doing a lot of what we were talking about earlier, where it's it's missing the complexity and the nuance of the tone. You know, it it, it lacks those Three Stooges send ups. It lacks the camp. It lacks it lacks the kind of like agonized joviality that you can kind of read between the lines. And it, and it is just grueling, you know. Yeah, and it, and it makes the whole thing kind of like just grim to sit through i mean it's the yeah. one scene where where i'm just like oh this is just it's just grim it's just it's not it's not good yeah it's um, it's, it's, it's a it's tonally ajar yeah you're right with that one and, but underscores underscores how well the rest of the film has been thought through because i just I, I genuinely think that that bit was just not thought through well at all yeah, no, I'll, I'll completely agree with that. And there's there's always there's always the question of like, as artists, what are we accomplishing when we make something? You know, like like what what is the goal of the thing that we're trying to make? And I think with this one, and they thought they were trying to shock people with something really unsettling, but what they wound up doing was was crossing a line that they uh, through through perhaps their own. Uh, lack lack of education in, in like you know like feminism and things like that just didn't know that that line was even there yeah totally um but shall we shall we uh, uh move move towards the conclusion of today's 100th episode of the horror vanguard by by revisiting a topic that you and i hold dear and that's our mutual detest for the academy <laughs> yes what a way to wrap things up. So, Let's talk about the fact that academics can ruin everything good. <laughs> everything good in this world. Um, as, as, as academics, I, I think, uh, yes. <laughs> but what are we talking about here? What are we talking about? Uh, we, we are talking about a, a character in this movie who didn't have a name until, I think, the video games. Or maybe Evil Dead 2. I might be getting my canon crossed. But thank God this, movie's only, or this episode's only about Evil Dead 1. Um, he's he's the nameless <laughs> voice on the recording who would later be go, go on to be named Raymond Noby. And what 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 is Raymond Noby's profession? What is he doing? Let's kind of like flesh this out a little bit. So Raymond Noby is <laughs> is a professor who is re- researching the uh, the ancient Kandarian ruins when he stumbles upon the Book of the Dead. It's it discusses ancient demonic possession, demonic burial rites, all kinds of spooky, nasty stuff. 
And in his infinite wisdom, he retreats with his wife to a ramshackle cabin in the hills of Tennessee uh, to read aloud from a book bound in human flesh, which that is the most tenured thing I have ever heard. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, d- could you could you not have just like left this with an archivist somewhere? No, I've got to take it to my private to my second home. <laughs> 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 full professor raymond noby is really screwing this one <laughs> gotta take it to my second home to my my cabin in the woods i've got to read it aloud and then of course i have to realize i need to murder and dismember my newly possessed wife i i do i do appreciate the fantasy here because i think i think if there was if there was a realism to this right it would be it would be Raymond Noby's underpaid, overworked teaching assistant, who's forced to translate this thing in between, uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, absolutely. marking like one hundred entry level English papers. Absolutely, and then it's like, oh, the professor promised me a co-author credit on the paper that he's <laughs> writing, <laughs> <laughs> but you don't even get the co-author credit. <laughs> No, be, no, because the professor has now been possessed and is a Kandarian demon. <laughs> I bet you, I bet you, those Kandarian demons would offer a better uh, scholarship package for young academics than Raymond. Oh, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. But this is an important point, right? This is, um, it's dealing with like ancient Sumerian and ancient Egyptian uh, religious and occult um, artifacts. And what does Raymond Noby decide to do? archaeologist so presumably it must have been involved in in the discovery of them at a dig site have mm-hmm. they been have they been uh given to a regional um cultural institution like a museum uh have they have they even been deposited safely in a library uh, uh at any university no they have been privately acquired and taken out of any kind of public institution where where they could be um, studied and, and properly culturally contextualized and they've gone to, and he's taken them off to to presumably his second home that he's bought with his tenured salary so it's like there's a really important question here about what is the ethics of archaeological research what does it mean to uh to be engaged in this kind of work I, I think I think we're this is a really po- compelling conversation, and the whole thing is underscored by just how awful Raymond Noby is at literally everything he does. <laughs> you know, because we, we what we see here is the consummate professor that has been divorced from material concerns, because the man literally dismembered his wife with an axe after she got possessed by Kandarian demons, and he sits there in front of his like yieldy tape recorder, going. My wife just got possessed by Kandarian demons. I'm going to continue documenting my research for future grant purposes. <laughs> yeah, I'm working. I'm working on a three-year proposal. So, <laughs> it's super. Oh, my wife just got possessed by Kandarian demons. Who's going to type up the manuscript of my next book? <laughs> ouch. I mean, accurate, but ouch. <laughs> no, and I, I, I think this is this is 100% accurate, right? Because what, what we what we see here is is one of the unfortunate realities of academia, and that's like 
as as professors move up the chain, as you, as you go from being a TA to an adjunct to 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 full professors and tenureships, like like the closer to the top of that pile you get, the the more you stop caring about the material needs of your TAs, right? It's why it's why we barely ever see uh, teachers unions going to bat for the TAs when TAs are are struggling to win basic workplace freedoms. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Raymond Noby and. Here's what I say to you, Raymond Noby. You join those fucking TAs on the picket line or you're a goddamn scab. <laughs> Raymond Noby, professor of scab studies, got what he deserved. This brings us on to a, a pretty uh, interesting question as we wrap things up, which is given, given the role in kind of colonialism that has acquired these artifacts, transplanted them out of their uh, cultural context, They've landed in the rural hills of America. Uh, demons have been awoken by the professor. Here's, here's, here's the question. Here's the, the potentially spicy question. Are the demons actually the good guys in this? Yes. Here's, 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 my, here's my ultra contentious, contentious response to that. It's, it's actually a little bit more complicated than a dry yes or no. <clears throat> but what we have here is like, we have, we have the problem that I talk about so often on this show, <clears throat> where what we learn about our monsters is, is so loosely understood, right? The Kandarian demons, what do, we, what do we know about them outside of the fact that the first thing that we hear from them is, why did you wake us up? <laughs> yep. And after, after an eternal demonic slumber, I too would be very grumpy at some college kids. I would be super cranky. Right, and then like we 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 just get the repetitious phrase of "join us" over and over again without a real consideration of what that means. And like again, this is kind of like there naturally. I mean, because you know we're we're dealing with you know the Necronomicon, the Book of the Dead. This is appropriately Lovecraftian, and that the the Kandarian demons are are ushering these people into a new way of life that they fundamentally have no way of understanding or connecting with, and we don't. Well, we will find out later on in the video game is what really happens to people when you get possessed by Kandarian demons. But like, for now, it really doesn't matter. <laughs> for now, it just leaves us with a complicated question of like, we're 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 dealing we're dealing with forces that these people, unfortunately, for the case for the students, and fuck you for the case of Raymond Nopi, <laughs> haven't haven't uh, uh, had the good fortune to understand how to communicate with, right? You know, like like yeah. if, if Raymond Noby would have been more principled in his research, he wouldn't have just started like reading demon resurrection rites. He would he would have laid some kind of like theoretic groundwork and potentially like figured out a way to communicate with these beings. And then we could know whether or not they truly are good or bad. And so we enter into this like complex ethical uh, gray area, a la Dracula and Hellraiser, and and over and over again we kind of like find the complexity of confronting the other when the other is presented as being inherently monstrous and bad. Absolutely. And yes, they have, they have very particular attitudes towards uh, bodies and uh, things like bodily integrity. Um, but it's, it's a perfectly reasonable response to say that we might not condone the actions of the Kandarian demons in Evil Dead, but we can't necessarily just condemn them completely either. Yeah, it, it, I mean, like, and like that's the that's the whole point of what you and I attempt to do as weird movie critics, 
you know, like Blaze Blaze really strange trails through films that probably never intended these lines of discourse to happen. But like <laughs> this is this is what's happening here in Evil Dead, right? Is that like we do not know under the conditions uh we do not know the conditions under which the Kandarian demons exist. And that raises the fundamental question of like they've been forcibly awoken, you know, from from their ancient slumber and we don't we don't know what that actually means and represents in the context of evil dead you know we yeah. we just know that they they really want to go back to bed <laughs> yeah join us you know it's not only a demand that you too cease your kind of disturbing activity and slumber but it's also a demand for some actual solidarity with uh, a demonic group that have been systematically dispossessed and dislocated from their 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 origins and from their roots um yeah yeah and it's it it all occurs here on the site of of american westward expansion on the site of the genocide of indigenous peoples on the site of, of the extraction of appalachia there is so much layered complexity to then bring ancient Kandarian demons and, and add them to, to the list of people who've been abused by colonial powers on that site. So what is Gothic Marxism, if not the affirmative response to the demonic demand of the, the oppressed and the othered and the, uh, the resistant and the colonized to join us? Uh, and we would say yes. Yeah, but resoundingly, yes. <laughs> uh, being a human is is weary business. I would like to visit the Kandarian <laughs> demon side of things, but no, no, it's, it's it's it is as the old saying goes: you are closer to being a Kandarian demon than you are to being a billionaire. And I think that that is something <laughs> that we need to really hold to heart. Uh, but I think I uh, well, that's a perfect way to, to exit stage left <laughs> for one way to finish with, with an anti-colonialist reading of Kandarian demons I you're welcome Give me so... a, give, Sam Raimi please please call <laughs> <laughs> Sam please please come on Horror Vanguard and talk about uh, the fact that bankers and academics are going to destroy everything good about the world <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I, yeah! I can't believe I can't believe we reached 100 episodes. This is just just absolutely fantastic. And thank you, thank you so much for being uh, my co-ghost during during this exciting adventure. And and likewise. And before we uh, before you lead us in to talking about our first ever musical guest, thank you to every single person who has taken the time to listen to the show who has uh, commented, who uh, supports us through Patreon, who uh, has sent us messages, who shared what we do with their friends and co-workers. Uh, thank you so much for helping us make 100 episodes of uh, talking about spooky theory and even spookier films. Um, but, Ash, how are we going to wrap up this episode? Yeah, this is this is this is so exciting. Um, we have a musical guest. When when we recorded our first episode, I would have never imagined that somebody would be like, "Hey, we like your podcast. Would you like to play one of our songs?" That's that's so that's so cool. Especially because like this this music comes from people I really respect, and the music is in and of itself phenomenal. The band is called The Ableist. You can find them at The Ableist on Twitter or also on their Bandcamp page. 
And the track is one of their new and upcoming releases, so we're really happy to, to tease something new from this band called The Last Go Around. And without further ado, uh, take it away, the ableist, who is definitely here with us in the crypt. This is this is not something I'm just adding in. <laughs> <laughs> 